Welcome to Half Hour to Curtain, a monthly podcast with theater artists of note. I'm Dan Fishback. And I'm Mark Kaufman. Hello there, Daniel. Hi, Mark. Well, welcome to the first episode of Half Hour to Curtain. We are thrilled you're listening. And we thought we'd tell you a little bit about us and a little bit about why we're doing this podcast before we get into the interview with John. Uh, my name is Dan Fishback. I'm a theater director uh, here in Los Angeles, California. Uh, I also teach musical theater at the um, academic and professional levels. Uh, Mark and I co-own a musical theater studio, uh, which is a training ground for actors, the Los Angeles Musical Theater Studio. And we uh, are very interested in hearing from uh, theater artists. So Mark, I'll let you talk a little bit about you and well, I'll talk a little bit about me. Um, I am a, a playwright and a director and have been involved in education in theater for many years at this point. But uh, I've also been involved with the Educational Theater Association for many years. Um, they are the, the, the head of International Thespian Society, and that's high school theater. And I started about 17 years ago teaching at state conferences and the national conference, which for many years has been in Lincoln, Nebraska at the end of June. Next year, we're moving to India, Indiana, I think, Bloomington. I thought you were going to say India. No, That's well, that would be change. very interesting for all of us to have <laughs> 5,000 students. They're even outsourcing the festival now, huh? That's exactly right. Mumbai is, is the destination. <laughs> okay. um, um, but in any case, so working with enthusiastic theater students has, has been uh, a wonderful thing and part of my life. And so Dan and I were talking, and we know there are a lot of podcasts out there and, and some deal with theater. But from our, our perspective, it's uh, interesting to find insight from theater professionals on their experience. And I think we're going to line up a number of voices of, of actors principally, but other people who work in the theater as well, directors, designers, um, writers, who, whose experiences will be you know, firsthand and interesting and voices you don't usually hear interviewed. Right. It's, it's interesting to me as a director and a teacher to hear people at various points in their career. So you know, we're starting here with John Rubenstein, a venerable theater artist who's been you know, working in the theater for a number of years. But we plan to also talk to you know, relative newcomers to the profession and um, get experience and, and um, a little bit of insight from them, because I think we can all learn something uh, along the way from each of these people. And, and that's our goal is to continue to educate um, and, and you know, diversify and, and hear perspective from a lot of different people. And also, we're not limiting our focus to just high school students, if you got that impression, or young people. Right. People, even our age might enjoy hearing <laughs> the firsthand perspectives of uh, people who have had careers in theater. Um, the anecdotes alone, I, am, uh, I imagine, will be very amusing. And uh, the insight into the backstage and the background of what what goes into producing great theater, I think, is something that will be uh, entertaining to listen to for everyone. We would like to hear from you. And you can find our contact information at our website at halfhourtocurtain.com, where you can listen to the episodes and subscribe. You can also subscribe on iTunes or Google Play, Spotify, however you get your podcasts. We, uh, we should be there. So I think without further ado... Let's have our first guest. Let's do that. Our guest today is John Rubenstein. Apart from many, many roles in television and film, John has, to date, a prodigious career in theater. 
He made his initial splash on Broadway, creating the role of Pippin in the show of that title. He has played a wide range of leading roles in such plays as Children of a Lesser God, for which he won a Tony Award, The Kane Mutiny Court Martial, for which he was nominated for a Drama Desk, M. Butterfly, Ragtime, Camelot, Streamers, The Tempest, Rosencrantz and Guildenstern Are Dead, Candida, Kiss of the Spider Woman, and if I keep listing them, there would be no time for the actual interview. Please welcome the legendary John Rubenstein. Hi, John. Hi, that was a long list. It could have been much longer, but we just thought we need to talk to you. Yeah, it's only half hour to curtain. In the yeah, right. So, well, jumping right in, um, you were born into the arts. Your father was uh, the renowned concert pianist, Artur Rubinstein, and I hope I'm pr pronouncing that properly. Well, you know what? His name was just Arthur, but in every language, it's different. So he was uh, born in Poland. He was Polish, so Artur with no H is how you say that in Polish mm -hmm. and in some other languages. But uh, in French, it's Artur, and in Spanish places, it's Arturo mm -hmm. with an O. And so his, um, his impresario, his manager, thought that Arthur Rubinstein in, in English-speaking countries sounded sort of like a, you know, like a Jewish tailor or something. <laughs> and so if you took the H out and made it sound like Arthur Rubinstein, he would be exotic. He would have some kind of, you know, uh, branding that would be a little bit more more appealing to ticket buyers. Mm. Because who wants an American pianist when you can get a Polish one? <laughs> and so that's stuck. But American people always have trouble with that. And they say, Arthur, 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 And it, so he just would always insist, please call me Arthur. So he's Arthur Rubinstein. Arthur Rubinstein, makes right. sense. Well, you, you then you grew up in that world and you became a pianist yourself and a composer. Were you thinking of following in his footsteps before the acting bug took hold? Not for one single second. <laughs> no, and I did not become a pianist. That, that's a misnomer. I took piano lessons from a very young age. Mm. I was musical. I, you know, in other words, music really meant something to me. And the stuff that I could actually execute on the piano, once I'd beaten myself into a pulp to learn it, I could actually play well if it wasn't too hard technically. But the moment I got to a hard part, it was the emperor's new clothes. And you could see, oh, I see. This kid is somewhere a musician, but he is certainly not a pianist. And that was understood by me, by my parents, by my teachers, and it was openly declared. <laughs> Since I knew that it was true, it never, ever bothered me. Where did you get the acting bug? When did that sort of hit you? Um, well, I, first of all, I loved the movies. And my parents loved movies and theater, so we always went to the movies. I was born in L.A., and I lived sort of an idyllic life here for the first seven years of my life. Um, and, but then we moved to New York when I was seven. And I went to these very high pressure schools, which I loved. And in the first one, it was called St. Bernard's. Mm. It was a British school run by Brits. And British take their public speaking and their acting and their and their silliness and their music, musical reviews, they take it very seriously, even when you're very, very young. Mm. 
and singing as well. That's just part of the deal. If you're in a British school, you know how to stand up and talk to people. You are corrected very, very strictly on your syntax and grammar and enunciation and projection, not for acting purposes, just to be a human being. And you are always doing some kind of a play. And it's and again, it's taken seriously. That's sort of the the difference because I've raised five children, put them through all different kinds of schools, and I've seen them all be in plays and be you know taught similar stuff. But it's not taken seriously. It's the silly little cute stuff for the parents to come and see and go, oh, look at little Johnny up there. But in this school, St. Bernard's, it was as though we were opening on Broadway. And, you know, there was no fooling around. We were all boys. Every, it, the school ended in the eighth grade. And every eighth grade class did a Shakespeare play, uncut. Wow. It, it was directed by your seventh grade homeroom teacher, Mr. Strange, uh, <laughs> who had been a doily cart, oh. Sullivan actor and singer. Wow. in England before wow. he became a math and geography teacher. <laughs> he played the, the, the little harmonium organ, pumping it with his feet at, at our prayers every morning. It was, a, it was an Episcopalian school, but it wasn't a religious school. But we learned all the hymns. We sang and learned all those beautiful, amazing British hymns. Um, and that's the sort of music I grew up on in school while growing up on my dad's music at home. Um, and so uh, I was in three Shakespeare plays, one in sixth grade because he used the lower grades for extras, you know, when because when, the classes were like 22 guys. And he, I was a fairy in, um, in a Midsummer Night's Dream. Um, no, in The Tempest, in The Tempest, uh, in sixth grade. In seventh grade, the play was Henry V, and oh I, played, I played the boy, which is a great little role. He has a huge monologue that he says. He's with Pistol and Bardolph and all the clowns, mm -hmm. but he has his little moment where he decides, you know, he's going to go to war with everybody else, even though he's too young. And I played that. And then in eighth grade, my play was Macbeth. And I played Macbeth. And these roles, these plays were uncut. Seventh grade, my homeroom teacher was Mr. Strange. And our class learned Macbeth. We read it out loud. All of us playing all of the different parts again and again and again. All the boys played the girls, just like in Shakespeare's time. And there was no iota, not for one second, even with the goofiest goon in our class ever was there mocking of playing the women's roles we took that as seriously as anything else wow he explained to us all the sexual references all the mythological references all of the history of england and of the wars and scotland and blah 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 so that by the time we finished our seventh grade year in in june we knew that play he has then assigned us roles he cast us um, and then we had the summer to learn our lines. And, you know, and some of them, they were very few, but mine was very big, big part. And I worked very hard that summer learning those lines, which I already was so familiar with having read them again and again and heard them and talked about them all year long 
in seventh grade. Come back in the fall of eighth grade and you start rehearsals. And that's where I learned stage technique. I, what I know how to do and what I teach at USC when I'm teaching there is what he taught me. How to move about the stage, how to make a stage picture and know where you are in the whole thing. How to analyze a play, how to project your voice to the, he always said there's a little guy in the farthest back row of the balcony with an ear trumpet. Because, <laughs> and he's holding up that ear trumpet and you've got to make him not only hear the sound, but understand the meaning of everything you say, or you're not doing your job. That's and, uh, amazing. There you have it. I mean, that's amazing to have that kind of grounding, yeah. you know, and those works at the age of what, 13? I mean, yeah, 13 is when I played Macbeth. In my high voice, I still talk like this. <laughs> Fantastic. So a few tomorrow, years ago. Tomorrow. <laughs> that's amazing. But, so, we, but we really did it. And meanwhile, to answer you, I'm still answering your question. Yeah, no, question. please. Meanwhile, I was living in Manhattan. And this was the arguable golden age of theater there, where you didn't have to have a gigantic blockbuster for a show to run. There were bedroom comedies, there were murder mysteries, there were musicals, of course, Rogers and Hammerstein and, and uh, you know, Bernstein and young, young Sondheim and uh, who else, Cy Coleman. I mean, all of those musicals were opening then and plays. And I went to them all because my parents loved to go to the theater. I went with them. I saw Mike Nichols and Elaine May. I saw, you know, uh, all the Brits who came in, uh, all those amazing plays, Luther. And, and uh, I, I, you could afford to buy a ticket. So on my allowance, my first date, the first date I took to the theater, we saw Neil Simon's very first play, Come Blow Your Horn. Wow. $15, $7.50 a seat, fifth row center. <laughs> wow. You know, and, and that was my education. And when I liked to play, I would go back and see it again and again and again. So I would see a play 10 times. I would sit up in the balcony. It would cost three fifty or something. And, you know, I remember going innocently. I didn't know who all the playwrights and actors were beforehand. And I, I wandered into Who's Afraid of Virginia Woolf? Wow. I'll never forget that. I was not prepared for that kind of discussion on a stage. Wow. And I remember I, I staggered out of that theater, Uta Hagen coming on stage going, I do not bray, you know, at the top of her <laughs> Yeah, that's how that's that was my education. I got it both in school on stages. We did a Piero show uh, in seventh grade. I uh, We did operettas. Um, I, I played uh, Peter Pan and J.M. Barry's Peter Pan, again, uncut, the whole thing. I played Maid Marian in a Robin Hood play. <laughs> it's amazing. So, yeah. so, you know, come to your first major Broadway show, and here's, of course, the million-dollar John Rubenstein question. It's, an, it's a, the title role in a new musical by, you know, Bob Fosse and, and, uh, and, and the, the entire team of course that's pippin tell us a little bit about how that came about for you oh my god okay i was living in los angeles i i had finished high school in new york doing plays and the second high school the high school i went to also did their plays not quite as seriously as the first place but still i've done a lot of roles by the time i finished high school i wanted to not go to college 
of my parents. We went to England and we saw Laurence Olivier, who was a friend of the family, in uh, with Michael Redgrave in um, Uncle Vanya. And we went out to dinner afterwards. And my parents said, Larry, you know, Johnny doesn't want to go to college. He just wants to hit the streets and be an actor. And they expected him to say, oh, no, my, my boy, you must do, you know. And he said, hit the streets, lad, do it. Yeah. <laughs> I, and so all through high school, I was not going to go to college. But they finally broke my arms and, and, and tied me up because the, the school prided itself only on getting kids into Princeton and Yale and Harvard. And I had good grades, so they didn't want to waste one of their students. So anyway, I said, I'll only go to school where I can work immediately. And that was either staying in New York or going to Northwestern or going to UCLA. USC didn't have much of a drama department, yet Juilliard was sort of out of the question because it was too scary. Um, and so UCLA, so I came out here, my hometown, the Dodgers were out here. Uh, and I, uh, I started to act in school. Um, I got an audition when Joel Gray left Cabaret on Broadway. He did the first year or whatever he did. And he was about to leave. My dear, dear friend, Barry Moss, who went to school with me, um, said, well, you should take over that role. You know, I said, well, are you kidding me? I was 19. He made a call to Hal Prince's uh, sort of right-hand woman, Shirley Rich, and said, uh, my friend John Rubenstein needs to audition to take over for Joel Gray and Cabaret. And she said, oh, all right. Well, we're, we're, blah, blah. Said, they, he made an appointment for me. I flew to New York. I learned Willkommen. I bought myself a little cane. And um, I went to see Shirley Rich. And she said, oh, well, um, you know, we don't generally do it this way. But Mr. Morse is, is such a, you know, a revered. I said, no, it's Moss. M-O-S-S. <laughs> and she thought it was Barry Morse, who was a rather <laughs> renowned actor of the time. It was a total blunder. <laughs> wow. But I had flown all the way to New York, so she said, oh, well, you know, what the hell? Go and sing for Hal tomorrow, you know, whatever, and then we'll get rid of you. She didn't say that. He was very, very nice. <laughs> I went there, and I sang my little Willkommen, and Hal Prince said, hey, you, you really have something go back, buy makeup, put on the white face and the little lipstick that Joel Gray wears because you look so young. But if you hide your face, maybe, maybe it'll work. So I did. I bought the makeup. I, I made myself a full Joel Gray face. And I teach this in my audition class. But I did not also rent myself a white tie and tails like he wore, which would have hidden my gangly teenage body. <laughs> so I went with my makeup on, but my normal clothes. And I was very, very, very skinny. And I looked like I was 12. But I did it. And I then flew back to LA because I was still in school. And I got a letter from Hal saying you were the best. And I wanted to cast you, but there's no way that that character can be a teenager. And you are 19, but you look 15. And they won't, I can't put you in that wow. part, mm. but you have a huge future. And he wrote me a, a, a letter that I have lost, but cherish the memory of, because it, it told me, go ahead with this, mm. you're okay. And I did. So now years later, 
I'm already working. I've done summer stock. I've done this. I've done a tour of, of one nighters of on a clear day. You can see forever all across the country. Um, I left school without graduating in order to do that. I was like three months away from graduating, but I got that job on the road and I said, to hell with this. Um, and doing a lot of TV and, and whatever I could scrape up. I did an Elvis Presley movie. I did all kinds of stuff. And then I got an audition for a movie called Zachariah to play the lead to play Zachariah. It was a, a Western based on Siddhartha by Herman Hesse. Oh. With rock music and uh, you know, Country Joe and the Fish were in it and uh, Joe Walsh and uh, Elvin Jones, the great jazz drummer, played the, the villain but also had a huge drum solo in the middle of it. <laughs> it was a crazy movie. And I got the part of Zachariah. It was made by a company called ABC Pictures. Um, and I was the star of their first movie. So they treated me very nicely. It was the one and only time in my life that that sort of situation was going on. And uh, I learned that they were only making one other movie. And that was Cabaret. Hmm. And I said, oh my God, I'm in this group now. I'm sort of high up in it. So uh, uh, there was a cocktail party to launch us before we went to shoot Zachariah. And I was sort of the golden boy of that moment because I'd gotten that part. And, and the, the boss came up to me, the, the CEO or whatever he was, and said, now, don't blow this. We, we got a, a million dollars riding on you. <laughs> I said, Jesus Christ, thank you. But I said, meanwhile, I hear that you're doing cabarets. Yeah, yeah, we're going to do that in a few months. I said, I, I want to play the MC in that. Because I felt confident about it since I'd been told by Hal Prince that I could do it. He said, we've got Joel Gray. I said, oh, okay. That was the end of that. So I go on and I shoot Zachariah. It's sort of a flop even though it's a I love it it's a great movie but it me and Don Johnson riding off into the sunset together and it, it's become a, a cult gay western <laughs> they interpreted that you know these two boyhood friends riding off into the sunset to be you know gay so that's what that's what that is um I get a call from that CEO when I come back from the desert before the movie is a flop so I'm still okay. My stocks are still, they haven't plummeted yet. And he calls me up and says, can you do an English accent? I said, yeah, easy. I went to that British school. I can do it better than Ian McKellen. <laughs> he says, well, because in Cabaret, we have Michael York, but he, uh, he suddenly uh, has a conflict with another movie. It looks like he's not going to be able to get out and we need a quick replacement to play the young British guy. In the original play, he was American, but since they cast Liza, who was my babyhood friend, I had grown up with her in Beverly Hills. Mm -hmm. um, and I, will you, you know, come and do a screen test? I said, yeah. So that's when I met Bob Fosse. He was, he came to Hollywood and I did a screen test because there was no videos and none of that kind of stuff in those days. You went to the sound stage and they had all the crew and the lights and the cameras, just like as though you were shooting a movie and you shot your screen test. So I did two scenes playing the Michael York part from Cabaret with Bob Fosse's girlfriend of the moment. Um, wow. 
And he and I got along really well. I had long hair. I tied it all back up in a bun so that it wouldn't show. Um, and I think he would have cast me. But Michael York fixed his schedule. End of story. Wow. So that was the end of that. Now, a year passes. Zachariah comes out and is horrible. End of that story. The phone rings one day. I am married to a woman uh, named Judy West, who was a Broadway dancer. She was in the original uh, She Loves Me, the original thing that Hal directed, uh, Family Affair. And uh, she danced very often uh, on Broadway and had done Pal Joey with Bob Fosse some years earlier where he played Joey and directed and choreographed it. Wow. So she had worked with him and Gwen and knew them all. So he calls me up at home. The phone rings. Hi, this is Bob Fosse. I said, oh my God, how'd Cabaret go? He said, yeah, it, it went fine. Can you sing? I said, well, uh, uh, sort of, yes and no. I mean, yes, I can sing and I've done musicals, but nobody would ever pay to hear me sing. So, no. <laughs> um, he said, uh, can I come over? I said, sure. And I told my wife, hey, Bob Fosse is coming over for dinner. She said, oh, that's nice. So he came over, she made a lovely dinner. I went to the piano and sang two Laura Nero songs. Uh, your listeners mostly probably don't know who she was, but Laura Nero, N-Y-R-O, was a fantastic singer, songwriter, pianist, lyricist, and had a gigantic beginning of a career, died too young, but influenced everybody. It, among many, Stephen Schwartz. So I played him two Laura Nero songs and sang them. Uh, and he said, okay, let's read this. So after dinner, we sat down on the couch. He had brought the script of Pippin. He read all the parts and I read Pippin. We read the whole play from beginning to end. And he said, okay, and he left. Now my wife was eight months pregnant. We went to bed early. And the, our house in the Beverly Glen was such that you walked up this long flight of steps into the bedroom. That was the first room you came to. So we had just turned out the lights. It was about 11.30. And there was a knock on our bedroom door. I opened it. Bob Fosse. <laughs> <laughs> so sorry to disturb you. Uh, he handed me a cassette tape. And he said, learn the second song and come to New York in five days. Wow. The second song was Corner of the Sky. The first one was Magic to Do. It was Stephen Schwartz playing the piano and singing the entire score of Pippin. Mm -hmm. That was the tape. So I heard the whole score. Uh, I learned that song. Uh, I don't think he gave, no, there was no sheet music. I learned it off the tape. Um, I flew to New York. Uh, I went to the theater. I can't remember, I think it was the Majestic. They had put an ad in the New York Times that weekend saying any young man between the ages of 18 and 35 who wants to play the title role in the new Bob Fosse musical, show up at this theater between the hours of whatever. <laughs> and so I had an appointment, so I didn't have to stand in the line, but there was a line that went 
down 45th Street and down 8th Avenue for about two blocks. Of course. Of wow. Every description of young man that you've ever seen in your life. It was the hippie days. So there were these guys with long hair and beads and weird jeans and shirts and, and carrying guitars, carrying trumpets. I mean... The, the, and there were some, you know, sort of experienced actor types with their little resumes and their pictures and all the stuff. It was the most amazing sight I've ever seen. I walked in and there were like two or three or four of us auditioning. I went down into the orchestra pit because I had no music. Um, and Fosse and Stuart Ostro, the producer, and Steve Schwartz came and leaned over the edge of the thing in the front row there. And I looked up at them while playing the pit piano and uh, sang my two Laura Nero songs again. And then I got up onto the stage and the accompanist went down there and I sang Corner of the Sky for them. And um, then I just stood there and they were back in the, in the house. And, um, and then Bob Fosse ran down the aisle to the very front of the stage where I was standing <clears throat> and said, part's yours if you want it. Wow. Just like that. Immediately. And I said, and there was this line of guys, you know, <laughs> and they saw every one of them. Wow. And huh? I'm sure some of them had careers after that. So they didn't pull a fast one on, on those guys. Um, he said, uh, yeah, go ahead. You know, it's yours. Be here on July 3rd. And that's, the, that's how I got that part. Now, you were on stage for about 90% of this, in the lead role in this very demanding show. How did you find a way to pace yourself um, doing it every night? I think you, you probably did the show for at least a year, yes? Two years. I, I signed a two-year contract. It, in those days, actors wanted, not me, but you know, in general, actors wanted good money, good billing, and as short a contract as they could get so that they could be available for other stuff. Mm -hmm. um, but they said, if you do this, you got to sign up for two years. Um, so I signed up for two years, as did uh, Ben Vereen. But we were the only two who did that. Um, yeah, I did it for two full years. I almost missed zero shows. And uh, I went to a wonderful singing teacher who was the sort of main guru Broadway singing teacher of that time, Keith Davis. And he taught me how to not ruin my voice while screaming eight times a week. And I use his techniques to, to, to this day. And they're not very complicated, but he was great. He, he gave me the confidence to, to do that because yes, at first I got hoarse in rehearsals and I said, oh my God, I had all these high notes to sing and I am not a singer. I wasn't being falsely modest. I, I am, I am a, an actor who can carry a tune. But Pippin is a very demanding singing. And the record that people know uh, doesn't sound like how we sang. We, we had no mics. So we sang into the, we had to fill up the theater. And on the record, we all, uh, everything, uh, this season. We sang like that because that's how Steve Schwartz wanted us to sing. <laughs> so that, I didn't realize you had no mics. That's. That's absolutely There were floor mics. There were three or four, I believe three, maybe four floor mics right down in the front of the, uh, of the uh, stage. And every now and then we were choreographed. We were directed to go down there so that 
we could be heard above the hubbub, whatever it was. But basically, no, you had to fill the Imperial Theater to the last balcony where the little guy with the ear trumpet was sitting. That's amazing. Now, you went back into that show. You joined the Revival production yeah. a couple of years back playing Charlemagne. Obviously, it was a very, very different you know, production in terms of style. But what was it like going back in a different role? And, and did, the, did the material seem familiar? Oh, of course. Yes, uh, it, it was, it was, you know what it was like? It was like you, you spend a very important part of your childhood in a family house with your family. Now you go on with your life and you leave there. And 40 years later, you suddenly find yourself living in that house again. Mm. Only your parents are gone. There's new people living there. They've redecorated it. They've repainted it. They've broken down some walls. They added something, you know, where the garage used to be. It's now a, a, something else. And there are different trees out front. But it's still your house. It's the exact same place. And it even smells the same in certain corners. But it's still very different. That's how, what it was like. Very emotional, very nostalgic, but new and fantastic. This has been Half Hour to Curtain, a monthly podcast with theater artists of note. I'm Mark Kaufman. I'm Dan Fishback. Half Hour to Curtain is produced by Los Angeles Musical Theater Studio. Theme song by Anthony Luca. This has been part one of the interview with John Rubenstein. Be sure to tune in next time for part two. And follow along next month when we bring in another theater luminary. Thank you from both of us. Goodbye. Goodbye. Goodbye.